0: Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask for your blessing on this time as we look at your word. Give us understanding, Lord. Lord, what we're going to be looking at and what you want to do in our lives, we have no right or privilege to of ourselves, but you offer to us through your grace. You make it available through yourself, Lord, and so... We can trust you, that these promises are true and sure, that you are the amen, and that you will do what you have said. So bless this word as we look at it in your precious name. Amen. I just, before we begin to look at the idea of preparing the way, just while I was uh, just doing some reading and the word this morning, I came across something that just um, speaks to the situation of America, you know, because what happened on, uh, at the parade, all, most of you probably know is the shooting and, you know, all the people that died from it and all the people that were wounded, um, very sad thing, and you listen to all the rhetoric that goes on, and it's uh, sad, it's tragic. And uh, the reason is because they don't understand. And so this is what the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 4. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish, they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. And uh, they don't understand that what's going on is, has nothing to do with guns, it has to do with judgment on a nation that they've forsaken God, that he's turning them over more and more to the base things, the basest things that they can be to be filled with, with hate and bitterness and all the other things that can go on that produces such acts like that. And so we have failed to understand what the real issue is. And the need for revival is all the more because what other remedy is there? You take the guns away, people don't change. They're still the same. And as we get further and further from God, the depravity of man is only going to become more and more manifested. The restraining influence of God will be removed more and more and more as people give themselves over to sin and rebellion. And as as younger and younger people all the time get into greater and greater evil, we make each generation worse than the next. What remedy is it? The church is not being a remedy. It's not. It's not answering the problem. You know, we have... We have ultimately failed because we have failed to understand what we really need. So, what do we do? Denominations, the one I'm in, that I'm ordained through, just produce another program after year after year, a new program, a new program, a new program. And after all these decades of programs, they still haven't learned that they don't work. So, they just produce another one. This will be the new one. This will be the answer. This is what we need the newest, greatest church growth principle, rather than understanding what the real issue is. And so, as we look at the prophecy of preparing the way, we're going to take uh, some weeks to try and understand what this is really all about, what is trying to be revealed to us for this time, and uh, how we're to put it into practice. And so, the idea of preparing the way, which is a prophecy that's in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, and that's what we'll be looking at, so you can turn there if you want, But that comes out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And that portion is a prophecy about John the Baptist. Now, when you look at this, and this is a very serious thing. I don't really think we always process how serious this is. There would be no Messiah if there was no John the Baptist. So it had to be. It's the way that God said it had to be. It could not come any other way. So, if you wanted to see Messiah, you really had to look for the forerunner. When you saw the forerunner, then you knew the Messiah was coming. And if people would understood that John was the forerunner, because for 400 years there had not been a prophet in Israel, now a prophet, a real prophet, a true prophet, had come upon the scene. Manifesting the reality that he had come to prepare the way of the Lord, that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. So, either he was a madman, or he was telling the truth. So either, either he was some deranged individual that looked at that prophecy and says I'm it, or he really was it. And the evidence is that he was it because uh, some theologians say that upwards of a million people heard John preach. The multitudes that came to him, a uh, nation hungry. For the reality of God because it had descended into dead ritualism. That was it. It had nothing else, it had nothing of, of vibrant faith that was there. It was this dead ritual even though in the midst sprinkled among the people were those who did want to know their God. And so without people preparing the way there can be no revival. Without there being a forerunner there can be no coming Messiah. There can be no revival. We have to understand this is a principle that is an absolute. If we do not prepare, revival does not come. If the church does not prepare, it will not happen. All that will go on then is another program, another thing we'll do. We'll keep doing what we've done before because that's all we know to do and we don't want to pay the price to do anything different then. And so the challenge is... And as I hope I really try to press this thought home is the challenge is do we really want to prepare the way? Do we really want to do it? Because it is costly and if If you don't understand that there's a cost to it, you may not comprehend the cost because I don't comprehend the cost. I can look at the Word of God. We can study it together, but it still doesn't mean we really understand the cost. When God starts showing up and he starts calling us into this, then we'll begin to see a little bit more of the cost. But we still will never understand because he'll take us on that journey. Are you willing to go a little further? Are you willing to go a little deeper? And I'm sorry to say that when you look in the history of revival, you find revival after revival that eventually stops. Not because God wants it to stop, but because man grows used to the presence of God, takes the Holy Spirit for granted, or allows sin or something to get in the way that stops the revival. Man is always the obstacle. But yet man is always part of the solution when we truly begin to prepare the way and we truly begin to seek God for this. And so we have to become a people that are wanting to be a voice crying in the wilderness. So let's look at verses uh, 4 through 6 of Luke chapter 3. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. And the Isaiah 40 prophecy adds in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So one thing just about the aspect of how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, um, it's not picking and choosing. They're not picking and choosing, well, we like this part of the prophecy and not that part, so we're not going to quote it. That is not the, the whole principle behind it. They would summarize basically what was the prophecy that they were referring to, not making some points true and others not, but giving the authority to it, and because of the expense of, of, of reproducing books and the writing materials and everything else, they did scale it down. And that was very, very typical for rabbinical writers or the, you know, the New Testament writers and so on. So because something is not included in the New Testament doesn't mean it's being left out. Uh, we have to look at the whole prophecy and understand that the whole prophecy uh, is being mentioned and all the facts of it are to be relevant. So what is the purpose of this? So you have the prophecy that's literally about John the Baptist, that he would come to prepare the way for Messiah. So what happened is, when you look at John, John was an agent of revival. So when he came and he preached the message of repentance, Matthew chapter 3, from that time on he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so the message of revival is always a message of repentance. And if something is claimed to be revival and the message of repentance isn't there, we better ask what's really going on. Now, it may be God is doing something, but it's not revival. Because for something to be revival, repentance is always central to the message, always. And we must see that. It's going to come one way or the other whether it is like the, the 1904 Welsh Revival where there was no preachers but, but people were just just prophesying and repenting and the Word of God going forth in a host of ways or whether it was like a, the revivals of Charles Finney where you had this man, this brilliant man that just preached the law of God so effectively that the conviction of God came upon people because they saw themselves guilty before God. So one way or the other, repentance has to come. But the image that is presented to us in this prophecy is, is very interesting. So you have a picture of a king that is touring his lands. So what he's doing is he is, it's springtime, okay, and, and it's time for him to begin to look at his lands. The winter months kept him, you know, closed in. It was hard to get out because of the, you know, the, the whole winter climate. So it's spring and now he's starting to go out and look through his lands. He's going from village to village. And what's happening is before the king comes to a village, he's sending a herald ahead of him, telling the people, prepare the way. The king is coming to you. Get ready for him because he's coming. And so they didn't know necessarily when he would come. And when a king would come, he would come and he'd come in a village and he would sit in that village. And they would sit, he'd sit on a port, like a portable throne type of thing and he would judge the people there. Cases would come before him and he'd deal with the people and he'd give out blessings or he'd give out judgments accordingly. Now if you think of this, that you have the herald that comes, the forerunner that comes and says, prepare the way, the king is coming. But the people says, no, we don't want to. And just imagine that they left their village an absolute mess. They didn't clean up. They didn't, they didn't make it ready for the king. They didn't set up a place for the king to come and his entourage to sent up a, a tent and all the things that was necessary. They didn't go and clean up the banquet hall that the king might sit there and, 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 and be with the people and eat with the people and so on. They didn't prepare. So what would happen? The king would come in anger and wrath and judgment would fall upon the people because they refused to prepare the way. But imagine the people that they did prepare. The king is coming. The king says, I am coming. He sent a herald. The time is coming. Get yourself ready. Clean the streets. Clean your village. Clean the, everything up. Make it look beautiful for him. Celebrate. Wait for him as he comes in. And rejoice in your king that's coming to you. What does that king do then? He showers them with blessings, Right? Showers them. That's the picture that's in the New Testament where he goes along and he scatters gifts unto men. Just he's filled with this joy because his people were longing for him, desiring him to come. So he's showering them with his goodness and his kindness and the bounty of who he is. And that's what God really wants to do. He's come to visit his people, he wants to visit his people, he's waiting for his people to prepare the way. But if he is saying, I want to come and you don't come, and you don't prepare for him, then guess what? A judgment will fall. And you know, one of the worst judgments, and I don't think we understand it, one of the worst judgments can fall upon us and we don't even understand it. Samson was a man that was a judge of Israel. But the entirety of his life, and I don't want to go deep into it, I'm just going to touch on this very lightly, but the entirety of his life was a life of of rebellion against God, and of unsurrender. He would not live surrendered to God. So he was to be a man that was a Nazarite, that was in a Nazarite covenant with God, but he did not fulfill that covenant. He broke in a host of ways. He drank wine. He slept in immoral relationships. You see one thing where, where it just presents the character of the man in, in the opening verse. I forget what chapter it is, but it's, it speaks of him going to a prostitute. A man of God doesn't go to a prostitute. So the man was just debauched. One thing left, one thing of the sign of covenant in his life was his hair. There was no power in his hair, it was an expression of covenant. That covenant had remained to the point that he kept the hair. Because a Nazarite was not to cut the hair. And what happens in the lap of Delilah, he finally gives the, the reason for his strength. Why he has the strength? Because of the covenant. It's in the reality that I have kept the covenant in my hair, at least, not in my life, not in anything else I did. But in my hair, and when she cuts it, the covenant is broke. And it says that when she said, the Philistines are upon you, he rose up before her and he did not know that the Lord had left him. And that is so revealing because that means that God was so far from him that he didn't even know when everything, the covenant was finally completely broken. That's a judgment on a people. Terrible, terrible. And I believe it's on many churches today, they don't even comprehend it. They've gotten maybe big, they've gotten popular, they've got tons of people, but God is nowhere in the house. He is outside of the church, knocking at the door that has been closed to him, crying to them, open to me, but they won't. And so, if he's calling us to prepare the way, our responsibility is to prepare the way. We have to do our responsibility. What he does is up to him then. Right? Is up to him. I would rather be a man that is crying after and seeking after the deeper relationship with Christ, after the move of God, after his presence, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, after revival. I'd rather be seeking that than to go the route of dead Christianity. I'd rather be seeking it even if I never got what I wanted I'd rather be seeking it and keep a fire inside of me instead of just become like everybody else in the church today that has become lukewarm and compromised. You Understand, this is an important thing because we have, to, we have to tend the fire in our hearts. Nobody else can do it for us. We have to do that. And if everybody around us gets cold, that is not a justifiable reason for us to let the coldness get a hold of us. Because God has given us promises that we can stand in the midst of any situation or temptation that we can overcome if we want to overcome, if we want to. And so we need to be a people that prepare. Now, I have over the years in preaching, I've seen it so many times, I would preach on revival and a prayer meeting would be started and people would be all excited. They really want revival and that's good, they should. So they start seeking for revival, and you might have a small church that has, you know, 10, 20 people coming out in prayer meetings, and then a couple of months later, it's down to 15, and a month later, it's down to 10, and then a month later, it's down to two or three, and then finally the two or three says, well, nobody else is coming, so why should I stay? So what happened is those who were trying to be faithful finally became like all those who weren't faithful because they weren't being faithful. It says, why should I be faithful then? You understand what I'm trying to say there? We need to be faithful no matter what. Because as we will look at next week, as we have to really understand the purpose. His coming to us. And if we are seekers of Him, we always gain Him. G. Campbell Morgan was a very famous preacher. 1904 Welsh Revival was going on, and he was very concerned about going because he didn't want to upset anything, but he wanted to go and verify that it was a real move of God. So he did go, and he went only for a time, and after he had been there for a little bit, he left because he didn't want to alter anything. He didn't want people to start looking to him or to start trying to put him in some you know, place or position, so he was wise in, in that. But here's what he said about the 1904 Welsh Revival. There is no preaching, no order, no hymn books, no choirs, no organs, no collections, and no advertising. There were the organs, but silent. The ministers don't preach. Instead, they rejoice and prophesy with the rest of the people. Suddenly, it seems like everybody is preaching. No order. Yet it moves from day to day, week to week, county to county, with a matchless precision, with the order of an attacking force. That's revival. And just to be honest, we settle for so little. I was saved in revival. I didn't know it was revival. Just to be honest, I didn't know it was. I thought that's what the church was. <laughs> you know, just a young, dumb hippie that got saved and is in the midst of this move of God. And just, you know, that's all I knew of the church. Other than that, I was raised Catholic. So I figured, okay, there's Catholicism, the rest, this is it. You know, until I started pastoring and started learning a little bit more that that was not what the life of the church was. Very shocking when you think that, boy, everybody's on fire. They just love Jesus and want to reach a perishing world. But revival ruins you for nominal Christianity. When you taste it, you always have this thing that's aching. That's why David in one of the Psalms says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. And that's why he says, My soul thirsts, my flesh longs for you. I've seen you, I've seen your glory. We don't know what that was. That account is not given to us in Scripture. Yet he is speaking of something that has taken place in his life. An experience that he had with God. That God encountered him. And he says, I thirst for that. I have tasted of your presence. If you have tasted of the presence of God to any extent even the, a little bit, that should be enough to begin to fuel a fire in you that says, God, I know that you are infinite and there is more for you, for me than what I have yet tasted. And it's not about experience, but it's about wanting to interact with this God, wanting to have fellowship with wanting to know this God, wanting to press in that we might taste of his glory, that his glory might rest upon us to flow through us to touch a hurting, dying world. Because the greatest way we can Touch a dying world does have the power of God resting upon us. The greatest way. And so there must be a voice crying in the wilderness. So like I said, there could be no, no Messiah if there was no John the Baptist. There had to be a voice crying in the wilderness. And of course, John was preaching from the wilderness. And when you think of that, it was astounding that a million people came to hear him speak throughout his time of ministry. They came into the wilderness to hear this man's preach, to hear the message of repent. And I would venture to say that there was a time back then that the message of repentance wasn't popular. Just like the message of repentance is not popular today. You see, Pharisees didn't preach repent. And that was the prominent religion of the day. And so now this wild man comes out on the, out in the wilderness and he's just preaching and people start coming to hear the message of repentance. And then they're being baptized because they are repenting and wanting to bring forth some kind of evidence that they are truly repenting of their sins. And so there had to be a voice crying in the wilderness. I think Rose went and shared this verse uh, within the last maybe two or three weeks. Exodus chapter 22, verse 30. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. But here's the good news to it. So I will pour out my wrath. Okay, that's not the good news. Excuse me. I didn't bring it all in. Okay. The bad news is so I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the Lord. In another place, it refers to that his own arm will come, will be the salvation, that he will do what man could not do. But the reason why I brought this out is because I believe God is looking for a man. D. L. Moody heard a, message, a preacher preach the aspect that God was looking for a man, and he, in his simple logic, yet he was a man that was... Ended up being powerfully moved of God because he had a passion for God and a passion for souls. And he went and had this logic that says, Okay, God is looking for a man. I'm a man, so I am able to be that man. Right? That's some pretty good logic. So, what did he do? Moody was never an ordained or licensed minister, always a layman. Yet, he had the largest church in Chicago. What did he do? He just went out there in the streets and he started getting children. Then he'd go and take candy or whatever and say, come, come with me to Sunday school. Soon he had so many children in Sunday school that the church was flipping out. They were freaking out because these are kids off the street. And guess what? They don't care about the roses in the front and whether everything is nice and neat in the bathrooms and so on. They're messy, right? You bring the world in, they're going to bring a lot of mess. If you don't want a messy church, then you know, just be comfortable with where you're at. But if you want to reach the lost, They're going to bring some mess with them. We have to be willing to love them through the mess. Well, they didn't want to, so they kicked them out. But anyway, that's the story of D.O. Moody was just, he says, I'm a man. God, you said you're looking for a man. I'm a man. Use me. Why not me? He's not looking for famous people. D.O. Moody was a butcher of the English language. That's why it's absolutely astounding that God used the man in revival in England because the English like proper English. And so here's this man that brutalized the the English language but yet was being mightily used of God and they could not deny the reality. One man came up to Moody and says, I don't like the way that you preach. Moody says, neither do I. How do you preach? Well, I don't. I like my way better. (laughs) Right? He did it. God used him. Here's a man. Use me. But you know what we do? We have all of our... Supposed insecurities, all of our fears, all these things that keep us cowering. I can't do it. It's not my calling. And so what do we do? We fail to stand up and to do something for the glory of God because we don't want to look like a fool. But God is looking for men, women, in churches. He's looking for men and women in churches that will stand in the gap, that will go to where the hurting and dying and the destitute are. He's looking for men and women that will stand in the gap. And all aspects of this prophecy applies to the individuals and the churches. The prophecy we're looking at from Luke chapter 3, from Isaiah 40. It says in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is an important, a very important point. Because there's, you know, there's evangelism taking on in our, taking place in our nation, but I really wish a lot of it was not taking place because it's not good. It does more damage than good. So you go, you knock on the door of the house, you got your little card and you say the little saying to them and you end up saying, well, would you like to pray this prayer? And you pray the prayer and then you say, well, you're a Christian now and then you go and you say, well, we've won this many people to the Lord today and not one single person got saved and those that you prayed with will now have a harder heart because they think they're okay with God, but they never brought forth fruit in keeping with repentance. See, the problem is not doing evangelism, but not doing evangelism God's way. That's the problem. And if we don't do it His way, then what are we really doing? What are we accomplishing in the midst of it? Because we can do more damage A.W. Tozer says if we have a revival of Christianity of the type we have today, it will take us a hundred years to recover from it. We don't need revival of American Christianity. We need revival of a biblical faith. Where God is transforming people. That's why when you look at the numbers in revival in the old revivals, they would say, with the I'll bring this out in a moment, with the Welch Revival, that a hundred thousand were added to the church. You know what that means? They were added to the roles of the church, giving evidence that they were truly born again. This isn't hand-raising and saying I'm Christian and still living with their girlfriend. You understand? This was real salvation, transforming lives with the evidence that proved it. That's the Christianity we need. That's what we need. And if we settle for anything less, then guess what? That's all we're going to get. And that's not what God wants, though. He wants men and women and children born into the kingdom and to come like we some, under the rule of the king. G. Campbell Morgan went and said, What effect is this revival, the 1904 revival, producing upon men? It is turning Christians everywhere into evangelists and converts into missionaries. And you know, that's exactly what I saw in the revival I was saved in. The evangelism that went out of this church was mind-boggling, was astronomical. And it was not organized. It was not planned. It wasn't some evangelism explosion program that came out there that was another worthless one among the many programs that had been out there. This was just young hippies delivered from drugs and alcohol that had a passion inside of them and had to go out and tell people about Jesus. I mean, I, I got kicked out of malls so much because I'd go in there to preach the gospel and when the security saw me, they'd usher us out and then we'd go to another place. At that time, you'd go to the airport. We'd go to the to the Detroit Metro Airport. We'd get kicked out of there and go to another place. We just wanted to reach people. Where were people? In the suburbs, they were in malls and other places like that. So we found any place we could just to tell people about Jesus. See, it wasn't organized. It was this passion inside of us. That's why evangelism is something that is caught, not taught. Because if it's taught, it's just going to be a program. Do we teach people what to say and how to say it? Yes, that's fine. That's absolutely good stuff. But if it's not caught, if it's not a passion inside of them, it will not take place. It will not happen. It must become something inside of us. So what do we do when we see that those things are inside of us? Well, we begin to do what John was preaching. Repent. We begin to cry out that God would change us. A man who wrote some extensive stuff on revival, James Orr, uh, speaking on the Welsh revival, said the revival began with prayer meetings of less than twenty intercessors, and those were all young people. They were all young people. The man who became the, the, the central figure of the revival, Evan Roberts left. Bible school to be in this prayer meeting, to lead this prayer meeting that eventually became the very catalyst of the revival. The revival began with a prayer meeting of less than 20 intercessors. When it burst its bounds, the churches of Wales were crowded for two years. A hundred thousand outsiders were converted and added to the churches. The vast majority remaining true to the end. Drunkenness was immediately cut in half. Many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with right gloves, signifying that there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery of the like to consider. The police became unemployed in many districts, and one account is that many of the police officers that themselves were converted became became these singing groups that went around to the revivals and were leading in worship. Stoppages occurred at the coal mines due to the unpleasantness Or not due to the unpleasant between management and workers, but because so many foul mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses could no longer understand the commands. I mean you understand what I'm talking about here. There'sn't some people just going to church. This is radical transformation of lives. One man. Referred to as a hawker, that he would be a man that did odd jobs and repaired stuff. He's a hawker, and he has his he has his uh his horse and his trailer, and he's riding on it. And all of a sudden, the the horse stumbles and falls, and all the man goes says Hallelujah. And somebody watching says, What are you saying, Hallelujah? Because your horse fell. I "I didn't say Hallelujah because the horse fell. I said Hallelujah because I didn't swear. Right? I mean, the change that goes down deep inside. That goes down deep inside something that is revolutionary. I can't tell you. When I was saved, this is what God did with me. I was delivered from drugs, alcohol. And guess what? Swearing. It's just, it's just this cleaned up language, this cleaned up life. And was I a finished product? Nowhere, even close. But yet the evidence of salvation was real. Before we can preach repentance, we must live repentance. You see, we must allow it to come home. The revival I was saved in was different than the revival at the Brownsville Assembly of God in Pensacola, Florida, which Pastor Jeff and Rose were there. It it, There's just differences with it. And every true genuine revival has differences. But the message of, that, uh, of the Brownsville revival was just so clear, so clear. Well, it wasn't as clear. There was a fault in the revival I was saved in, in the preaching that I was saved in. And that's why there was such a high backsliding rate. But the Brownsville revival had a pure message. I mean, Steve Hill got up again and again every single night, five days a week for five years And one way or the other, preach, repent. That was the message. No goofiness, no strangeness, no strange doctrines, no gold teeth, no all the other stuff that had gone on in other places. Repent. And you know what came out of that? Repentance. That was my home church for four years. When we were not out on the road ministering ourselves, we'd be there. We were on the prayer team. And I can't tell you the amount of people I prayed with at altars, I prayed with pastors. I, one, one particular time, I prayed with three pastors at the altar, all of them repenting, coming to Christ, all of them assembly of God ministers, all of them in sexual sin. The repentance was tremendous. You see, that's what changes lives. And yet, night after night, As I was in that service, many times behind the the, the preacher back there with the other people that were going to be on the prayer team. And guess what? You are under conviction once again. Because when the Holy Ghost shows up, the Holy Ghost does what the Holy Ghost does. And he convicts of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And he comes to his church. And if you don't want conviction, then you do not want a move of God. Not a genuine one. Because if he shows up, if a holy God shows up, he is going to do what a holy God does. And I'll tell you what, you may not understand it if you've never been in such a thing, you don't comprehend, but I will tell you something, it is so wonderful when he convicts and is tearing apart your heart and comforting it at the same time and pouring in his blood that cleanses and the healing that goes on and the joy that comes out of it. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. And so we have to be willing to discern our own spiritual condition. We have to. And if we're not willing to be honest with where we really are and have a tender heart, lay aside our, pharisa- our pharisaical uh, ideas that we have that we're good or whatever until we lay those aside and are willing to say, okay, God, whatever, deal with my heart. Show me what's inside of me. Show me what I can handle as I can handle it. And you know he does it right. The devil comes with us to us with a big stick to show us how worthless and good for nothing we are. He'll even take the truth of what we've done and say, look at what you've done. Look at what you are. Look at where you're going. But when Jesus convicts, it can be absolutely agonizing, have you, you weeping on your face. But then you feel those arms wrap around you. You feel the wonder of his forgiveness. Just the wonder of that nearness. There is nothing. There's nothing like it. The Welsh Revival, 1904 Welsh Revival, was a prayer and praise revival. And so it was very different. It wasn't a singing revival. It was this prayer, and they would go from from, from praying and somebody would stand up and repent of their sins and confess their sins and then everybody would go to praying for that person another would confess and another would confess and then it'd go to, to worship and somebody'd lead in a song and it's, they'd sing and then it'd go back to prayer and then somebody would have a word and proclaim a word and it was like back and forth like an ocean that was just moving and the waves flowing over the people. Evan Roberts many times was not even known to be in the meetings because the meetings were all over the place. So, they didn't know if Evan Roberts would be there or not. And sometimes he'd say something, sometimes he wouldn't. And so, this particular time, Evan Roberts suddenly jumped up, lifted his arms, and demanded silence of everybody. Then he began to make an all out attack on the insincerity and hypocrisy which was creeping into him, into the people like an infection. He asked, How many of you only came to church occasionally? And then would sing, I need thee every hour. And then like a gunshot, he said, shame, shame. The word rang across the audience like a pistol shot. People bowed down over the chapel, crying out as though they had been smitten by a plague. There were many, many people converted that day. How many of us want to move a God? How many of us really want to move Because you see, we're always to count the cost. We're always to count the cost. And this is no different.